listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hello. Hello. G'day. <laughs> You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, the 20th of May to the 24th of May. What a week it was. Post election wash up. That was about it, really. But we had lots of guests in. Jane Gilmore came in to talk about the future of feminism right off the back of that election too, so it was a very interesting chat. Mm. Also, we got to chat to uh, Dr Heather Holst uh, about how governments can help struggling Australians with rising housing costs. And uh, we also had a bit of a chat about casual clothes day. Mufty day. Mufty day. And not nufty day. Not, 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 although that can be a result. <laughs> True. And uh, we chat lost tortoises that uh, long lost, <laughs> they come back very, very slowly. And uh, Emma Costa, the creator of Hello Cass, an SMS chatbot in regards to uh, sexual and family violence. Super interesting. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Journalist and commentator Jane Gilmore is here to discuss the future of feminism ahead of her free event at midday today as part of Monash Clayton's Progress Festival. Jane, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, thanks for having me. Jane, in 25 words or less, what is the future of feminism? <laughs> 25 words or less? Um, I think it's liberation from the constraints of patriarchy and that's liberation for both men, women, children and everyone else as well. Hmm. And is that... Tick. And, and, <laughs> Thanks uh, for coming. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, so this talk that you're doing, how, uh, how up to the minute is it? Uh, well, given that I'll be finishing writing it on the way there, I think it's going to be very <laughs> up to the minute. I think we can call it straight off the cuff. What, what, have, what, have, what the election result, in the wake of the election result, how has uh, feminism and, uh, you know, issues of women played into... Well, that's why I'll, I'll be finishing off the speech today because I wanted to wait for the election like everybody else. I wasn't expecting it to be as bad as it was. Um, but I was doing the numbers this morning and... We're basically looking at the gender representation in Parliament has changed by less than 1%. So we've gone from just over 29% to just under 30%. Um, and that's assuming that everything plays out the way the AEC says it's going to at the moment. So there's still some seats in doubt. But we're still on the 30% line. And the coalition, at, again, if it all plays out the way they're predicting, they'll go from 13 seats in the House to 15 seats in the House held by women. That the Parliament as a whole, something like 95% English-speaking background, whereas Australia as a whole is about 75% English-speaking background. So when we're talking representation, this Parliament is not representation. I call it imbalance, not gender balance. It's a gender imbalance and it's entrenched. How so, important is it, though, to... You know, if we introduce quotas, why is that so important? What benefit does it have to to have quotas? Like, just on gender, for example. Well, it worked in the Labor Party. So the Labor Party started talking about quotas uh, 25 years ago this September and they've now got, I think they're on around 40% um, in the House and they've actually got more women on the last Senate. They had more women than men. So if you balance over the whole thing, they're they're close to parity. And that doesn't happen because men just step back and say, oh, no, no, here you go, you can have my seat because mm. I think there should be gender balance. Change doesn't happen unless somebody actually forces it and that's what the, has been done in the Labor Party and it's worked. The idea in um, the coalition that people get selected on merit, merit apparently only happens in middle-aged white men now. Mm. I'm sure there are some fine middle-aged white men but I bet there are some 
equally fine middle-aged white women or middle-aged women of colour or young women of colour and the fact that we're excluding all of those people from representation is a problem because it's not just a, a symbolic thing, it's about how you establish the priorities of government. How do they think about the world and what are the things they think are important? And when you have the entire perspective dominated by a, a single demographic, you get skewed from the way the rest of the population thinks. Now, I know we're talking today about the election being a wipeout. It's not. It, it's like 49% of the country didn't vote for the government. Mm. We still don't even know if they're going to form majority government. I know it was a, it's more of a surprise loss for Labor than a surprise win for the government because it wasn't a win for the coalition. Mm. So what what other barriers, though, are getting in the way of having more diverse representation? Other than things like quotas, what else can be done? Um, look, I think it's a really complex question because people have been talking about this for a long time and, as I said, not much has been changing mm. um, as far as getting not just women but... Um, people outside that straight, white, middle-class, well-educated white man, the barriers are that, that people tend to select people like themselves and so all the power brokers in both parties, really, are still coming from that, that main power group. And until you change that and until, you, until you've got other people in that power group making those selections who can see the benefit in having a more diverse or more actual equal representation of the country... It's, it's a sort of self-perpetuating power base. And in discussions around feminism and politics, what is the role of discomfort? Um, I think feminism makes a lot of people uncomfortable and I think it should make people uncomfortable um, in the same way that when we talk about racism or when we talk about um, homophobia, any of those things that, that disturb your view of the world and says, well, your view of the world is, is unfair or unjust or you are benefiting in ways that you don't realise from the status quo always makes people uncomfortable. It makes... Talking about racism can make me uncomfortable when we talk about the Aboriginal population of Australia and I think I am the beneficiary of atrocity that is still going on now. Mm. And that is an uncomfortable thing to accept. I would rather feel like, oh, I got here on merit. Mm. But I didn't. I got here in part because I'm white and middle class and I have to accept that these are benefits that, that I have that have given me things that people who don't have that have had to jump through a lot more hoops than I had to. It's uncomfortable because I worked really hard and I want to believe that that was all that got me here, but it wasn't. But how do we have these conversations on a broader level? Like, I look at the election and, the, the I mean, debatably, the, the, the person that won reduced the conversation to a, a minimum. There wasn't much said. He didn't say much. He didn't address big issues or big ideas. How do we have this conversation nationally? I don't know because one of the things that I found disturbing was the level of engagement. Now, I know we're saying we don't trust the polls, but actually the polls weren't that wrong. Mm. If you look at the polling in the last week or so, it was down to 49.51 yeah. with a 3% margin of error. The polls actually predicted what happened. But one of the polls that I saw just in that last week before the election was that something like 50% of the country said they paid little or no attention to the campaign. So they just didn't care. They weren't listening. And I think part of that is about trust. So there was a study I was reading a while ago about... One of the major factors in political engagement is trust. So if you trust your institutions, then you're more likely to get engaged with them because you're more likely to feel like you can make a difference. But if you don't trust them, you know, a lot of the, the attitudes that I was hearing when I was out on Saturday night when I just couldn't take watching the election anymore and had to go and see a band, but I was talking to people there and there were people telling me they didn't vote. And I said, well, well got to vote. You know, it's really important. Why didn't you vote? Oh, because it wouldn't make any difference. Why yeah. would I bother? So while that attitude's still there, when there's no trust that the governments or whichever party you vote for will actually 
act on anything you think is important, how can you get people engaged? So yeah. I think it's up to to governments in many ways to re-establish that trust and the only way you re-establish trust is by proving that you can be trustworthy. Mm. And what impact does the news media have in this conversation, do you think? Um, that's really hard to know. There's a lot of research that's saying that the Murdoch press doesn't have the influence that it used to. Um, I know, I think it was in the last election, they did an analysis on the where the um, biggest readerships are, say, of the Daily Telly around Western Sydney and they all went Labor despite the telly's very obvious campaign against Labor. So there's some evidence that that the old-style media doesn't have much of an influence. On the other hand, there was a lot of information, or fake news stuff that was going out on social media about the retiree tax and the so-called death tax, that I think for those people who aren't engaged and they see it flip by in a Facebook scroll or on their Twitter feed or wherever it is that they're on social media and kind of go, oh... Labor's bringing in a death tax, oh, I don't want that. Or a retiree tax, well, what about my parents? Mm. And that's about as much as they see because they're not actually engaging with news media about politics. So I think it's... I mean, you have to find your information some way, don't you? You have to make up your mind based on something. Mm. So even if it is just a quick meme that, that flips past on your social media, if that's the only information that you're accessing, then, yeah, I think it has an impact. And despite all this, you are optimistic? I'm... Well, maybe not this morning, but in general, <laughs> yes, um, I'm trying to be because I do think change takes a really long time, that it's not something that you can look at in terms of weeks or even years. You've got to look at decades, sometimes centuries. If you look back, say, at what's changed since my mother's in my mother's lifetime, that um, rape in marriage was still legal, that the marriage bar was, was still in effect just before um, she started working, that there was no pension for single mothers at all unless you had were married you know all these things have changed in her lifetime that she can still remember having milk delivered in a horse and cart wow. that's how much things have changed in her lifetime so while it feels like nothing's changing while i'm still waking up every week and, and another woman's been murdered another woman was murdered on election night while these things keep happening it's hard to to believe that change is happening but you, i think if you take the long view it's easier to remember that actually we have done a lot and mm. in the long view, maybe in my daughter's lifetime, maybe not in mine, but maybe the time my daughter's as old as my mother is now, maybe she'll be able to look back and say, well, things really changed since mum was yabbering on about feminism every night when we're cooking dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess with that in mind, what do you want people to do? If people are listening and people are feeling frustrated today, I see a lot of conversation online. Uh, that kind of isn't amounting to anything uh, that, that, I don't know, that lends itself to any kind of direct action. Do you want people to take up these causes and go into the streets and to join groups and to be more active? Is that Would that be your yeah, recommendation? I, I think um, don't despair. You know, take a, t a day or two to go, OK, well, this is a bad week, but then don't give up hope and keep that engagement and try and keep that engagement. It happens in small spaces. We think it happens in the media and we talk about the Murdoch press, but in my experience, it happens in conversations. Mm. At lunchtime, at work, at the pub, at the sports clubs, where you talk to people who disagree with you and you can have a conversation instead of fighting. Like social media, it just descends into anarchy. Yeah, it's hard to have a conversation on social media yeah, without... Yeah, but in yeah. real life, it's surprising how many minds you can change and how many people you can say, hey, did you know about this? Get engaged. Mm. Why didn't you vote? Even as I said that Saturday night when I was berating these people <laughs> who said they didn't vote, that there were a few times where I was people kind of going, oh, yeah, well, I wish I had now. Yeah. You know, I thought it would be okay. But then I'm going, well, you thought it... You, then you just told me it didn't matter and now you're saying, oh, but this is not okay. So vote, engage, and having those conversations, I don't know whether they make any difference, there was a few drinks taken, whether they'll remember it in three years' time, but 
I would like to think that that if we get engaged and have more of those conversations in person, it's that slow slow change, grassroots change, I think is where it really happens. Hmm. Yeah. Jane Gilmore, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Three Triple R. I went to work yesterday afternoon at my my old my casual job that I still tap into every now and again um, this is where I work in um, after school care um, so I'd go and hang out with some primary school age kids yeah. you know it was fun to ask them what what do you think about the election <laughs> <laughs> what do they say it's funny you can tell the kids that um, that obviously talk politics with their parents or you know yeah. and listen and stuff um because there's one kid that was just like <laughs> obviously watching on TV and he just he just what did he say he said oh it was the it was the election labor couldn't lose and what did they do lose he said that <laughs> yeah oh my god man kids are funny that is very cute um but it was funny. It was uh, it was good to it was good to go back and um, so one of the other staff members that I work with, this lady, um, she's like, "Oh, you're still doing the radio?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." She goes, "I listen. When are you on? What time are you on?" I'm like, "Between six and nine. And she went, "I listen to you every morning at that time. I listen at every morning, and I've never heard you." Like, I'm like, "What station are you listening to?" And she goes, "Three AW." And I'm like, "Well, that's why like, you're not yeah. hearing me." I love <laughs> that she thinks that you're working for Three AW, though. Yeah, I think she just. You know, obviously someone had said three triple R. Ah, oh, yeah, and yeah, And she got yeah. the three and then she made me type in <laughs> the the um, 102.7 into her phone. Like, triple R, 102.7. Um, anyway, it just reminded me, like, these kids, um, uh, you know, they don't have uniforms. Um, so it's, like, casual clothes day every day. Oh, the pressure. Isn't it? So much pressure. Because you guys had uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm uniform. grateful for yeah, it. So yeah. grateful for it. Anything to cover up my awkward teenage body as well with just a bag of a dress. That's what the dress did. And I didn't have to think about, you know, it's yes. such an awkward age. You we, like, Limbs are weird lengths. Yeah. I you miss the feel tunic. Uncomfortable. Tunic. Yeah, oh, tunic in primary school. That was yeah. great. Tunic with a skivvy. Yeah. That never looked good on anyone, but everyone looked bad together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how many Rip Curl hoodies can I possibly have? I know, I know. To, to cycle through a week. Yeah. I am. Um, <laughs> did you call it, what did you call it though? Did you have a casual clothes day or was it? I think so, yeah. And it was, what, you would donate a dollar and it would go somewhere? Yeah. yeah. We, I think our child, our school sponsored a, a child. Um, but we, call it, we called it Coloured Clothes Day. Oh. Is that. Only what colours? What There's a guest here, and we maybe might have to put Lloyd inside. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you want to just? <laughs> there is a dog in the yeah, studio. Yeah, there is a everybody. there is a dog Lloyd, in the studio. Lloyd, come here. Lloyd, come on. Good boy. Come on. There you go. Good Where boy. Where would you want to get this on through AW? <laughs> no. Lloyd, Lloyd, good boy. Oh, never mind. Lloyd's wearing coloured clothes. Yeah. Oh, oh it's, your phone was left over at the coffee. This is the most oh. unprofessional we've ever been. Where's your phone, Daniel? It's with it's in that lady's hand. He's standing oh, at the right. door. Do you want oh. to just grab that? <laughs> oh, this no, is the this best. Is, this is a great door. Thank you Bye. very much. There we go. Anyway, anyway, Daniel just coffee. ran to get just to put that in context with everyone. Daniel just ran over to get us coffees. He left his phone, and uh, the people from the coffee places ran his phone into the studio, which paid Lloyd run out to them, and <laughs> all hell ensued. What an amazing <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that. That was very kind. That was extraordinary. 
Um, anyway, color, we called it Coloured Clothes Day. Ah. Oh. I don't know why it wasn't, yeah, just, I think it's because you didn't get to, What colour was uniform? Oh, just normal, like, I think green. St- like, no, nothing, it wasn't black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, but, yeah, and then, so, yeah, we had Coloured Clothes Day. But I remember in, oh, I think the worst, though, was when you'd rock up forgetting it was Coloured Clothes Day. Like oh, you wouldn't yeah. the I mean, only one have nightmares in about that. that. It was honestly, you would have, I remember when we had a casual clothes day coming up, having anxiety dreams that entire week before about turning up in my school uniform. Yeah. Because it was just the worst. Yeah. Also, I think there was, there was the rocking up and then halfway through the day getting, oh my God, why are you wearing that? Yes, in American accent. Yeah. Why, why are you wearing that? Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I'm getting chills. Yeah. I mean, I, I wore this is this is not quite a casual clothes thing, but just it shows that nothing escaped kids' attention. I remember I was rummaging through my underwear drawer looking for jocks, and I couldn't find any. They they're all in the wash, so I oh. used a pair of bathers or budgie smugglers. Oh my god! And I'm like, well, who's gonna know? It's not like I'm gonna get dacked. Oh. But for did you get dacked? No, I didn't get dacked. Although, I, I, but someone must have seen like an elongated drawstring, <laughs> and I was emotionally pummeled. Oh, that is, oh, it's horrifying. Even just talking about the worst casual clothes days were always year seven, year eight. That kind of first yes. part of high school. Because I think when I was a kid. You get a bit teased if you weren't wearing the right brands. Mm. At the primary school I went to, that was a really big thing. If you weren't wearing like Rip Curl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tr- it was, spoken about this It was before. Trigger Brothers. Yeah. Where we were. yeah, yeah. Mum bought me Piping Hot from Kmart. Yeah. And it was so, yeah, anyway, I still haven't lived down Piping Hot. <laughs> Horrifying children. But in Year 7, I remember the first casual clothes day, not thinking about it very much and thought oh, I'll come in something kind of casual and cool. And I you came in. tracksuit pants? I wore tracksuit pants. I wore tracksuit pants and runners and a polo top. And I oh, got right. so teased so badly by oh, uh, I know really? by kind of it was that really early on in year seven where people were still Why negotiating their levels yeah yeah it was really you know there was a hierarchy is that what you wear when Did you, you go out I remember walking in and this girl who were a name nameless but I remember said did you wake up in that <laughs> And how mean is that? Do you know how what's mean a... is that? And I didn't even. And it just in that moment, my innocence cracked in half. Yeah. You go from being the primary school kid to the the tortured high school. What's kid. worse though is it going in blind? Is it oh. the you know you go in you go oh yeah whatever everyone oh no I've made a big mistake or is it when you get dressed up and you're like yeah this outfit <laughs> is on point yes. I am yeah this is amazing and then you walk in and then everyone's like oh nah that's <laughs> that is not okay that's not okay i think it was when i um had my older sister had bought these um jeans and they were rainbow striped colored jeans what could possibly go wrong here <laughs> i know but people <laughs> But I had, and I'd, I'd match it with um, a red sports girl T-shirt. Oh my god! 
which I um, sports girl t-shirts they were so popular weren't they and I I had one that I made last for (laughs) many years and I would wear it as often (laughs) as I could it's my sports girl t-shirt but these I matched it with these yeah these rainbow coloured striped jeans but I just remember walking around all day like oh my god where'd you get those jeans from what are they and my only backup was that they were mambo jeans were they actually mambo jeans yeah they were and I was like they're mambo excuse me they're mambo it's designer (laughs) It's got a label. Look at the label. It's Mambo. It's Mambo. (laughs) That's why I'm allowed to wear it. Having older sisters, the amount of times that we would be in the car, and we we would all go to school together in a combi van. That's oh amazing. But but it was so. Oh my god, Daniel! It was so cute. It was so noisy, and some of my sisters were so embarrassed that it would have to park like two blocks away and then get out and walk the rest of the way. But sometimes you would be driving and you would see kids. Walking in school and they were in casual clothes. Ah. And it was like, abort! (laughs) Turn it around! Turn it around! I just love it how the whole school knew you were coming. I know. Uh, Bert's are here. That's right. (laughs) We had a car, we had an old Ford station wagon that had a the uh, aerial had been snapped off and rather than replace the aerial, Dad got a coat coat hanger. Oh, mate. Oh, Jeez, I can't even tell you. I used to make mum stop a block away from school. Like, pull up, mum! And also, my brother was a mechanic and he'd put an air horn in the car. So then mum, yeah, so when my mum came to pick us up, it'd go. <laughs> anyway. Three, triple, ah. Oh. Dr Heather Holst is the inaugural Commissioner for Residential Tenancies in Victoria and has almost 30 years' experience working in the housing sector. She's speaking at an upcoming event at the State Library entitled How Governments Can Help Struggling Australians with Rising Housing Costs. And she's uh, here with us now. Dr Holst, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. What, what is the state of play as you see it with ra- rising housing costs? Well, there's been a lot of media, of course, about um, housing costs starting to come off a little bit in some of the the major cities, and um, a lot of worry about that. Huh? Mm. But the um, the very definite trend for many decades now has been a rise of cost. Um, I'm really concerned, of course, with the segment of people who uh, can't, won't be getting into home ownership um, about the renters um, in Victoria, and that. Depending where you are, uh, that's about around 30% overall. And in some areas of, of Victoria, it's much, much higher than that. Um, so I'm interested in, in that housing cost question as it plays through into people needing to rent and how much it costs to rent and what the conditions for rent are and how that kind of all plays through. And what, what role does, does the government play? Well, there's a number of um, tax incentives and expenditures that uh, both federal and state government make. Uh, There's been, we've just come through the election, there's been a lot of talk about um, negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions that are directed to uh, investors, people who, um, you know, own rental property. That's a really big sum. Um, There are other concessions that aren't negative gearing as well, like the things that you can claim um, as a as an owner of rental property is a pretty long list. Um, and conversely, the um, amount spent on direct investment by governments in social housing in particular and also in affordable housing, you know, they're kind of not the same thing, that's probably worth teasing out a little bit, is um, is declining as the other is growing. So there there is a lot of 
uh, direct investment, but there's also setting of policies, I guess, um, to do with um, planning policy. Um, or, or there's a, just a myriad of things actually that governments do intervene um, with on housing, well, and the, you know why we've got the housing situation we have. I was going to say, what are the major factors that are maintaining uh, rents at the level that they're at at the moment? Well, it's always a good old um, supply and demand, yeah. <laughs> actually. Um, so when you've got an area without enough supply, which is pretty much everywhere, normally the equilibrium figure is considered to be 3% vacancy. Um, so if at any time um, rental properties available in a particular area, there's a 3% vacancy rate, uh, is about even, but that's for many, many years been below 3%, which means it's a hot sort of market where there's more demand than supply and that naturally means um, house prices uh, rental prices go up. Are there areas that are more affected than others like obviously inner city but I also heard recently that areas like the surf coast certain towns are facing rental crises because of the introduction of Airbnb so people are no longer renting out locally they're renting out short term over the summer months. That's absolutely right and actually um I live up in Castlemaine, which has uh, got the same problem. Uh, so it hasn't been... These these areas haven't thought... haven't needed to provide much private rental housing um, because traditionally it's been possible to get into the ownership uh, of housing much more easily in regional Victoria. Not saying that was for everybody, um, but it was a lot easier than um, where we're sitting here in, in, you know, North Fitzroy, for example. Um, so when that shift starts to come on, and partly that's short stay, but partly it's people leaving the city um, to look for somewhere that is more affordable uh, for the sort of life they want to lead. Uh, I guess if you're earning minimum wage in this country, there's not really a lot of options in terms of finding a place to rent. Um, do we need to find more housing or give people more money? Uh, yeah, well, the economists tell us uh, that um, both things are necessary, mm. actually. Um, sometimes, for example, the more money uh, for housing, if it's only to be used on housing, can inflate uh, prices sometimes. Um, but, yeah, we, we need to do both and we need to, we've got the ability to model these things out and work out how they, they should apply. Sometimes there's a problem with trying to do one national thing um, when you've got a whole lot of sub areas that need uh, different approaches. Um, the most promising thing I've seen is um, the idea of either a property tax or a land tax um, on all people who are, are already in ownership and, and most importantly that that revenue raised is actually used to provide housing for people who can't otherwise get it in the private market. That, that step's often missed. Um, is, yeah. is the Australian dream a pipe dream? Is it stupid nostalgia? Is it ever coming back? Did it ever exist? Um, yeah, well, it was always a bit of an exclusionary thing. Yeah, that's true. It did exist more than it does now. Um, and in some, in some ways it's, it, it is a pipe dream for some people, that's true. I think the elements of it, though, are reasonable to dream of, which is somewhere that you know you can stay. Um, somewhere that you can think of as your own place and dare to make connections into your neighbourhood, dare to put roots down, um, you know, get your own GP, invite your friends around with anyone having an opinion on that. Th those aspects of the dream I think we should stick to. Um, whether that means only can be enacted through ownership, I, I would argue that's not what 
what we should be thinking about. We should be, and and um, you know, Victoria's taken quite a strong step in its rental reforms um, into uh, people who rent being able to actually have a home and be able to fulfil those sort of dream yeah. you know dream sounds like unreality but those should be basics i would argue well how much work needs to go into something like rental rights you look at cities um, cosmopolitan european cities like paris where they have really strong rental rights because it is very common for people to rent for decades in the one place in a city like that do we need to kind of catch up a little bit there yes we do um and we are starting to catch up um so before the middle of next year in victoria um uh, 1st of July 2020, all the about 130 different aspects of private rental will be um, reformed in Victoria. Uh, and so one of those that will be removed is that no reason eviction, um, which is a real fundamental, actually. And what's so, that for people that don't understand? Uh, so now if you're a renter, you can be given an eviction notice um, without a reason. Um, so you can be given an eviction notice if you don't pay the rent or, or cause damage or the owner needs to move back into the property. There's a, already quite a long list of reasons that, you know, fair enough kind of reasons to be evicted. Mm. But there's also this sort of reserve power, which is actually I'm just going to give you a notice to vacate and uh, I don't need to give a reason. Um, so that'll be removed. And that New South Wales, for example, hasn't gone that far in their... Suite of rental reforms. What other reforms are we talking about? Like, is there reforms in terms of um, rent increases and, and things like that? Rent increases has been a lot less gone to. So, at the actually, it's now changed. You can only get a rent increase every twelve months now. Um, there's no constraint, particularly on how much that rent increase is. Although you can appeal if you feel the rent increase takes it above market rent in the area you're renting. That's that's your only ground. Uh, there's also been the introduction of longer-term leases. Uh, so the classic lease here in Victoria is six months or 12 months and then you seek to renew if you want to. Um, but there, there's the introduction has already happened of longer leases with the idea being that there's um, foregrounding of what rent increases will occur at what time so people have more predictability which is one of the big problems for renting. You just don't know when you're going to get an increase, how much it'll be, mm. can you pay it, will you have to move? Yeah. Are there some people who maybe think they're insulated or uh, might not believe that any problem in housing is going to affect them, but they're actually vulnerable? Um, yeah, actually. <laughs> I mean, I've worked for many, many years in homelessness um, and, you know, you have yourself a really bad accident. Uh, you have yourself an incredibly bad kind of relationship breakup where, um, you know, the other party decides to freeze all assets while they go to court. You know, th all these things do happen. Um, family violence is, is really a big deal, um, of course, for propelling people into homelessness. And they can come from pretty well-to-do situations into that. So um, I think that, you know, it is, it is there for... A, for all of us, actually, unfortunately. And, and what uh, suggestions, what, what do you think is the most prominent suggestion that you're urging? Uh, for um, uh, improve renting, renting rights, um, recognise that that's where a lot of people are now uh, and will live their lives, for that matter. It's not just a kind of zany thing you do as a student temporarily or whatever the kind of, you know, thinking is. Uh, and even if that was so, you still need good rights mm. for it. Um, think about what sort of uh, 
investment government should be making into the provision of um, social housing. Um, there is, as, as I sort of remarked earlier, there's a difference between affordable housing, which is often super loosely defined, and social housing. And I'm a real proponent of actual social housing, such as, um, you know, is targeted to people on the lowest income, on New Start, on disability pension, um, and no other. Uh, that and seems to have fallen out of fashion, though, with governments. There isn't much investment in social housing. Why is that? Well, it is, has become very expensive because of the aforementioned prices. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, during the 90s in particular, there was a real fashion policy fashion switch to the market for provision. Um, and I think governments actually really literally lost the way to do it. You know, they used to have old housing commissions with all sorts of useful useful people on staff. Um, they've been disbanded, really. Right. The community housing sector has partly taken that up, but it's not got up to, to full strength. Um, but it's mainly that we, as voters, haven't said to our governments we want on social housing it's actually important to me as well as to people who aren't very good at asserting their rights because they're just trying to survive day to day yeah was the election particularly edifying in t- for this issue well i don't think um the incoming government has come with any uh specific housing policies at all um so you know there's there's a whole lot of work to be done on that um so no once again I, we see you know a, a bit of a gap there do you kind of lose, I mean, from the election, looking at it, you, it's hard not to lose faith in what Australians want from housing because many people have said that like, those that did have home ownership got scared by the fact that um, the negative gearing was going to be taken away. This idea that maybe someone's wealth might be used to help someone else out into housing it seems to scare australians and and obviously scared them at the ballot box does that make you feel concerned for the future of social housing or do you think that this can be worked through with a conservative government um look i I think it has to be worked through um i think the literal number of people who are homeless or in severe stress is just going to keep rising if we don't work on it one of the problems we've got now is that um the complexity of policy response that needs to be made uh, is actually super hard to explain simply. Um, so we we also need um, people who can put that idea across to whoever's government and then government put it back, back to um, the people. I do think um, my experience over the 30 years has been that pretty much everybody has got a concern about it. How they express it at first can be a bit unfortunate or a bit strange but you know you talk to people um they can usually think of someone in their friendship group or or family um that's been touched by this um and that you know changes because people people have you know both those sort of fears that can be appealed to but also um that more broad thought i think and in and in your decades of advocacy do you have any good news stories Mm. that uh, lend some promise for the future that you can draw on uh, look, uh, this may seem a bit of a strange one to pull on, but the um, the reforms of the, in the rooming house sector in Victoria, I think, is a pretty good news story. I'm, I'm not saying every rooming house is great uh, or that every rooming house room is adequate for the person who's obliged to live there because of their low income when, in fact, their health or other needs might really mean they need much better housing. Mm. Um, but the fact that it's really been brought out of the shadows into the, into the daylight uh Owners have to meet a fit and proper person test. Inspections happen. You can look up a public register of over 1,200 rooming houses now. 
that that's the sort of thing I think we need to get cracking on and be pretty optimistic about. Cool. Well, it's an issue only growing in importance. How governments can help struggling Australians with housing with rising housing costs is a free event held by the Grattan Institute at the State Library of Victoria, Tuesday, June 4 from 6pm. Dr Heather Hulse will be among the speakers. And uh, thank you for coming in. Oh, thanks, guys. That's great. Three. Triple. Uh, we've all lost things over the years, found them again. Um, but how's this? There's a family in Brazil um, <clears throat> that was cleaning out their house and they found uh, a pet tortoise that was that had been missing since 1982. Oh, my God. Was yeah. it alive or dead? No, yeah, it was alive. Um, How long this is, tortoise is, I guess, a long yeah, time. This is a couple of years ago that this happened, I've just realised, but, you know, still, <laughs> whatever, current. Um, the, so basically there was this um, this family and the they'd had this... The, the father had um, had died and he'd been a bit of a hoarder, so they had this back room that was kind of full full of stuff and they were just like, oh, OK, it's time to clean, oh. clean that out. Um, and they... There was like a box of old records... Um, which one family was taking out to a dumpster um, and as she was about to leave it, there was a neighbour who was watching him and said if he was going to throw throw away the t- tortoise that was inside of it um, and he's like, oh, I couldn't believe, you know, put the trash bag on the floor and the neighbour just told me, will you throw out the turtle as well? At that moment I was white and did not believe it. Um, so it turns out there was th- their family pet um, and they say that since termites are quite common in the region and so much furniture was left in the room, they considered the possibility that the enterprising tortoise was using them as breakfast, lunch and dinner. So it's just, you know... Where hey. would it get water from? Oh, just condensation. <laughs> <laughs> Licking the windows. Yeah. This, this exact same thing happened to my cousin who uh, was living in Mornington, had a tortoise, tortoise went missing, tortoise is gone. He moves out of Mornington, I think, lives in Tasmania, then comes back... Mornington visits an old friend who lived a couple of blocks away from his old family home and who should wander in <gasps> to the backyard but Get the tortoise. out. Mm. How many years? Is this a lie? Like 12 or more. How did, Where how did you know it was the same tortoise though? Because you, you can, they knew, I mean it was his tortoise, the, the pattern on the shell or something or there was some. Oh wow. Excuse me, I just don't understand. Where would it have been living? Why did it just wander into the I second? don't know. I guess tortoises are pretty resilient. They've been around for millions of years. Yeah. They can, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine with or without I can't believe it survived. It's like it's um, it it had been in his owner had been in Narnia. Like no time had gone yeah. past. <laughs> Just oh, get out, mate. How are you? That is so cool. Yeah, isn't it? But it's if, if I was if you were the tortoise, you'd be like. You're you're my ex, basically. Like we we we're not. You you abandoned me. You yeah. uh, we're. So it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't one of those videos where you see the lions re, oh, with the, oh, reunited you know. with their keepers and they yeah. hug them. Very slow motion embrace <laughs> with the tortoise. Just the tortoise walking in and just look, oh, oh, hello, you're back, are you? <laughs> um, I had a friend um, who had a pet tortoise, but a, um, a mum accidentally ran over with a lawnmower. Oh, it was horrible. fine. It was fine. It was, what do you mean it, it, it was a, fine? It, just cra- it cracked its shell. But oh, it's not fine. <laughs> it was fine. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't die, but it was more like I think a mum just thought it was a rock or something, so just kind of went, oh, and then picked oh. it up and just threw it over to the side, not realising that it was a... 
was a pet tortoise anyway. But that's a, a significant amount of time for something to go missing and then find it again. Mm. Well, my mother has this thing, maybe many people have this, is where if you lose something, and this is a regular occurrence, unfortunately, and it's something I'm trying to change about myself, but uh, she launches into three Hail Marys. Oh. So you do three Hail Marys. You don't pray to St... Um, Patrick? No. No, who's Anthony. St. Anthony, yeah. St. Anthony's who you, you pray to when you lose your... Patron saint of lost things. Well, well may, maybe she's got the wrong handbook. How <laughs> <laughs> Mary's... But, she, seems, but she, she only lets you know that she's done it retrospectively. So oh. as far as anybody's concerned, she's, like, got a 100% strike rate. <laughs> but, but if the keys don't turn up, yeah. she just keeps it to herself. Oh, man. I, had a, I lost a wallet once and I it turned up, like, years later... Like two or three years later. Was it in the spot where you'd expect it to be or was it somewhere strange? It was in my bag. Oh, jeez. Oh, that is the most Geraldine Hickey story I've ever heard. Years. <laughs> but in my it, there was like a, an inner lining of the bag that had, uh-huh. that had come undone and it was in... In the lining of the bag rather than in, you know, it was in rather than the part of the bag that mm. I always use. You Do you know. know the weirdest thing that I ever lost? Well, I don't know if you classify it as losing, but when I was about five years old, I might have mentioned this before, I was obsessed with finding four-leaf clovers. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I used to spend hours at our farm on the ground going through the grass and one day I found a four-leaf clover and I ran it into my dad and he didn't believe me, but then he looked at it and he goes, oh, yes, really, he's a four-leaf clover. I'm still amazed that that actually happened. Oh, I know. I I did the same thing just in our backyard. Just I don't think I spent hours. I think I spent like a couple of minutes going, oh, well, did I give up? Yeah. yeah. I was obsessed with it though. And he took it and he put it in a book. I would have been maybe five. Yeah. And I never knew what happened to it. He goes, oh, we'll keep, we'll store that. And then after he passed away, like years later, we were going through all of these old books at our farm that we had to throw out. And I just, and, and we, there were so many, so many books, there were boxes and boxes that a lot of them were just giving to people. And, and I just happened to open up one of these books on this exact page and <gasps> it squished in it was what? the four leaf clover. Do you still have from like it now? twenty years ago, from twenty years before. No, how bad's this? I put it, I put it aside somewhere because I couldn't believe that we'd found the four leaf clover, and then it disappeared. Oh, I know. So I, I showed everyone I'm like this is four leaf clover I found twenty years ago. It was tri- like shriveled and kind of yeah, brown, yeah, but it had yeah. actually been pressed really well. And I put it aside with the bo- like in the book, yeah, on, put the next book. to the telephone kind of thing. But I'll put this here, and yeah. somehow in the process of us going through everything, someone got- must have picked it up and. I might, I might oh. still exist somewhere in mm. the world. No, How man, bizarre is oh, that? No one can take away that moment from you. Well, thanks. Yeah. 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 But I don't know that it brought me any luck. I felt like I there should be some you, luck. if so you soon. subconsciously knew that that was the book, like, you know, whether oh, you remember, yeah. like, your dad, because you would just watch your dad put it in the book. Yeah. Because he was pressing if, it for me. He's, yeah. Uh, that was the idea that he was going to press it and then we we're going to, you know, put it in a bookmark or something, but mm. I couldn't remember. I reckon, yeah, I reckon that's why you went, oh, there's something about this book, what is it? And then opened it up and went, oh. But f- finding an old wallet is such an oh, anticlimactic no. reunification because <laughs> <laughs> you've already Sorry. replaced all, all the cards, your Even... driver's licence is done. Well, there's no cash in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so depressing. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hello Cass is an SMS chatbot that provides helpful anonymous information about family and sexual violence. 
that feels just like texting a friend. Its founder and director, Emma Costa, is here to talk us through its creation. Emma, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks Emma, for having me. What is HelloCast? So HelloCast is an SMS chatbot. So chatbots are uh, computer simulated conversations. So it's not a real person chatting. So all the information is there and the way when people talk to it, it kind of triggers different responses. And it works via SMS. So you actually don't need to download anything. You can just text the, the HelloCast number and start chatting. Okay. And how does it work? So the phone number, which is, uh, I'm just going to say it now and then I'll repeat it later, uh, 0417-398-744. So all you need to do is is text that number um, and start off by saying hello and then CAS, the chatbot, will respond and kind of guide you through a series of prompts and ask you questions about what information you're looking for, who you're looking for the information, um, who it is that you're looking for the information for, and yeah, and guide you through information and support services. And this is, sorry, this is for primarily for people that are perhaps in a situation of family violence, or well, it's for so it's for family violence and sexual violence. So it covers uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment information and services, um, and it's also for people who might be worried about someone. So you don't need to be you know a victim survivor yourself. Maybe it's a friend or a family member that you want to get info for, and also for people worried about their own behaviour. So. Um, if you think you know you've something's happened and you want to kind of understand your behaviour, get some help. There's yeah. info there too. What made you want to create something like this? Yeah, so I, I have a tech background, um, and I th- you know, and I'm a pretty um, ardent feminist. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, safe space. You can okay. say <laughs> and I think uh, the internet kind of turned into like a mess of gambling apps and e-commerce. I wasn't really loving what I was doing. Um, in tech and I just through some volunteer experience and life experience I, I knew that this was a massive problem and getting information kind of safely and reliably was was hard for people so the idea behind CAS as well is that it's it's easier to you know just send a text message it's not confronting in the sense of you don't have to speak to a person on the phone it's a bit safer you can save the number under a different name in your phone if you like or delete the text messages so it's almost invisible on your actual device so have you created some kind of ai algorithm to make this work so initially yes and then no <laughs> so it's pretty basic from a technical perspective um so we're calling it the mvp which in tech speak is min- minimum viable product um, and it's it's almost like a decision tree, really. So you kind of it. Technically, it works. I don't know if this is interesting, but it works yes. via okay, good. Um, <laughs> via keywords, kind of triggering different responses. And the reason we it's really basic at the moment is for any AI to work sufficiently. And you would know this, you know, by the way that Siri and Alexa stuff up all the time. Mm. You need a, a huge amount of training data. So we just didn't have access to that data. So something that we can do through HelloCast is start to build, anonymously of course, build a, a, a data training set that we can later look to, you know, more, you know, interesting applications of AI. So what were some of the kind of statistics around sexual violence and family violence that made you go there's a gap here we need to we need to fill it with something like hello Cass. yeah so the statistics are shocking you know one in four women in australia from the age of 15 will experience intimate partner violence so you know domestic violence from a, either a former or a current ex sorry former or current partner um one in five women will experience sexual violence of some sort and then if you look to more you know marginalized communities or or live in 
women living with disabilities, you know, for women with an intellectual disability, it's nine in ten will be sexually abused in their lives. Oof. So I know it's one of those statistics that I always have to check before I, I say it because I kind of, you know, yeah. I've been working this for two years and I still can't believe it. But also underreporting is a big problem. So despite these figures and, you know, in the post-Me Too era, only about a third of incidents of violence are ever reported or disclosed. Um, but Halakas still remains anonymous, so it's not mm. like when... If you feel like you're in a situation and you're worried about, you know, people finding out and all that kind of... It's still anonymous, yeah. You're just there. It's just there to give information yeah. and help and, and guidance. Yeah, it's it's not a emergency response service so if you're feeling unsafe it's not the thing to use mm. if you're feeling unsafe it's you know you should be calling triple zero really or or a service like safe steps um who can respond to you if you're not comfortable calling the police but so it's really there for um i guess providing information providing really discreet pathways you might not know you know in a, in a family violence context a lot of people stay because you know, they can't afford to leave. Mm. That's a big problem. So looking for where you can get advice around financial assistance, that information is in there as well. Um, so just providing people with the info that they need to start the, the conversation with a support service or, you know, get a safety plan together. I well, think how accessible this would be too to young people who are on their phones so much. Seeking out help, looking up a number, ringing an organisation is really confronting. But if I'm a 15-year-old mm. girl, mm. unsure about behaviour yeah. that's occurring around me or that has happened to me, to pick up my phone is to be able to text uh, what is the definition of sexual... Or, 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 yeah, you know, what is consent? What is or, consent? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the kind of information it can provide as Yeah, well. absolutely. Um, I mean, yesterday, I don't know if you saw in The Guardian, they had an article that one in seven young people think that rape is acceptable if someone changes their mind and I mean this is like it's kind of devastating that the, that the information is not getting through and kids mm. are still not even just kids but people are still not fully understanding that consent has to be continuous consent is you know there is no gray area mm. yeah it's also so it's not just I mean you mentioned this before about aiming at people that aren't quite sure about their own behavior um it's the, you know, have you got much research behind that? Is there, like, where do you send people to go if they're not sure about whether they've done something wrong or, you know, whether they're not sure about consent and things like that? Yeah. Um, so there's men's behaviour change programs. So I'll start, you know, talking about, say, male perpetrators. So mm. No to Violence and Men's Line are two services that you can access in Victoria. I must say that HelloCast at the moment is Victorian-based because each of the help, the providers are state-based and the laws are state-based, obviously. Mm. Um, so No to Violence and Men's, men's Line are two um, behaviour change programs, really, where you can speak anonymously to a counsellor as well and chat online as well. Um, and then in LGBTQ relationships, With Respect is a great place to start. So that's 1-800... Oh, I'm going to stuff up the oh, acronym. That's all right. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> um, or use HelloCast, yes. actually. Yeah. <laughs> you can find it there. Um, yeah, so that, you know, is a great starting point for anyone um, who's either worried about their own behaviour or looking for assistance in LGBTQ relationships. And to an outside observer, it just looks like you're talking to your buddy Cass, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's just a text message. It's not branded with anything. It's literally just a text. Um, she might be a bit she. I've just gendered it. It's not <laughs> gendered. <laughs> I don't know why I've started doing that. Um yeah, I mean, it's it, it won't, It's probably more polite than most people you speak to, but, yeah, it doesn't look like 
you're talking to a help service at all. Mm, and there's no evidence on a desktop computer of websites you visited to to... Yeah, that's right. You can just completely delete the text thread and um, and ask again. You know, something, there's a, a technical roadmap. So that's kind of the future plans for, for CAS. So the roadmap I am describing is like a, you know, super highway that you're driving along really, really, really slowly. So there's, <laughs> it will improve. It will get better over time. Um, something that I'd love to kind of work out over this period is do users want HelloCast to remember more about them? Because an anonymity starts to become interesting then. So, mm. you know, lots of questions to ask and I'm not moving quickly in a tech perspective. I'm working really slowly because the important thing is that it's trauma-informed, it's safe, it's discreet and it's, you know, we're putting users' needs really first. And, I mean, it's been live for a little while now. Are you learning things about the way people are using it? And if so, are you then able to take those things and adapt CAS in the future? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, one thing that I was kind of freaking out about in the first week was like, oh, my God, people are using it like it's the year 2150. <laughs> like, it's intelligence, as you know, like it's not, yeah. you know, people's managing people's expectations around what AI is capable of in this kind of application or what, you know, what where chatbots and personal assistants are at is not quite where mm. we would like them to be. Um, but otherwise it's really looking at... I can see kind of very functional things like the way people get used to the sense very quickly of what information is in there so they start doing their own thing in terms of navigating it and you do need to kind of say menu and things like that. So there's little bits that I will be working on in the next probably six to eight weeks just to improve that user experience. Um, and it was really hard putting scope around the content in it as well because... And I was... I. You know, I'm used to running tech projects and I'm quite, I'm pretty hardcore about keeping a tight scope around things except for when it's mine and I just blew it. Like it was, you know, I just kept growing and growing and growing in terms of what information was in there. Um, But there isn't everything, you know, and and there can't be everything. And it also kind of points to gaps in the services, you know, like, you know, for male victims, victims of crime is a really good place to start for, for assistance, but... There's, there's not a lot of information out there. So, so yeah, oh, I'll and probably I think get in trouble saying these things. No, I but that's fair enough. I mean, that's mm. why you, you create... It's, it's important that you do these things to find those gaps and, yeah. and mm. that's, that's important. Because I think that's, you know, one of the hardest things is finding out where where to go and where you find this information. And I think, you know, this is yeah. obviously a great, a great tool. Tell us about... Um, you got a little bit of funding for it. Yep. Um, but how? What do you need more funding? What else is happening with it? How is it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last year I was lucky enough to receive the Maya Innovation Fellowship. So that gave me a full twelve months to kind of not do any other work, just focus on HelloCast, which is the only way it was built. Um, otherwise, it's been pretty well self-funded and continues as such to date. Um, so yeah, we've got a Patreon page set up, and I'm also kind of pushing. Um, for funding at a state level and now that things have sort of calmed down in Canberra, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'd be looking for federal funding as well. With the view to take it national, national if that was possible. Yeah, that's right, mm. yeah. And, I mean, I started this... I'm really interested, from a, I guess, from a tech perspective, looking at low-resourced communities and, low, and people who are hard to reach, you know, which is why it's SMS as well. Um, you don't need to be connected to the internet. You don't even need the 3G and 4G networks, which you know, 2019 in Australia, some people don't have, which is appalling. Um, So the idea behind 
my approach to technology, I think, is is working from the outside in. So who are the most hard to reach? What can we do? There will be some compromises in user experience. It's not going to be like a split-second instant. It might take a few seconds because it's got to go to space and come back. But that's not quite how SMS works. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) I've given myself away. Um, But, yeah, so, you know, it would be really interesting to take it to international communities the Pacific places yeah. like okay. that. Okay. Well, for more information, go to hellocast.com.au and to start chatting, text hello to which number? Uh, 0417-398-744. Emma Costa, thanks so much. Thank you. Three triple R. The award-winning comedy series The Letdown, about the highs and lows faced by new parents, returns for its second season, May 29, on ABC, and we're lucky to have its co-creator and co-writer Sarah Scheller with us in the studio. Sarah, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a real honour to be here. Well, I mean, gee whiz, you've made quite an effort to be here, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I flew from LA on Wednesday to Sydney and then Sydney to Melbourne last night. Goodness. Uh, And the, the, the first season... Uh, documented uh, Audrey and Jeremy's life with a newborn and as someone without children it was very confronting Um, tell me season two gets easier (laughs) it does I mean season one for us was very much about what the sort of the psychological effect of having a baby what it what it means to bring a baby home um, unless of course you've home birthed and you're already home Um, but yeah just leaning into that sort of emotional state, the, the weight of, of having to look after this life. Um, obviously foci- focusing on the physical side of it as well and, you know, it would be remiss not to focus on those well-trodden tropes like the sleeplessness and the sexlessness and, you know, um, changing nappies and all that. Of course we feature all of that, but we also wanted to lean into the more emotional state. So season one was very much about Audrey sort of struggling and, and struggling to come to terms with her new life and season two for us is very much about... Um, giving into it. So she is, the themes are kind of choices and decisions, the choices that you make once you've surrendered <laughs> to family life, mm. uh, the decisions you have to make for other family members, um, not just with her children, her child. Um, and that sort of carries across to all the other characters, all the other mothers as well as Audrey and Jeremy. And it's about home as well. It's more about the interior um, and, and it's hard to sort of talk about without giving away too many spoilers because <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a few. <laughs> and the, the subject, motherhood is such a, and parenting is such a prickly subject matter. Do you, how do you navigate all the, uh, the cacophony of opinions that must fly around? <laughs> yeah, we definitely try to be balanced. We, you know, we try not to be too judgmental um, because I think mothers do cop a lot of that from everywhere, whether it's from your own mother or from a mother's group or your partner. Um, so we, we do try to be balanced. Um, but, I mean, it's a, it's a universal theme. So it's, you know, we've been so lucky that we've had a, you know, the ABC commission the show and then we're on Netflix. So we've had people contact us from all around the world and the issues seem to be the same no matter whether mm. you're in South Korea or Argentina or Melbourne. Um, how, yeah. how much of the storyline from, from the TV show have you drawn from your actual lives? Oh, quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of our friends as well. Um, 
Yeah, no, Alison and I, we, we really do like to write from truth. Mm-hmm. It, it really helps. No, no matter how crazy the storyline may seem, if you, if you know it's actually happened, it's much easier to write um, with authenticity. And that's really important for us. We always wanted to make this show really grounded in, in truth. And how, can you talk to us about the writing process? Like, you live in LA. Does Alison Bell live in LA as well? She's recently moved over. So we, we both sort of, we, we come back and forth. I've got a place in Sydney. She's still got a place in Melbourne. Um, we, she came over to write season one in LA. Yeah. And then we also wrote most of season two in LA. Um, so we like to be, it, it helps to be in the same room. Yes. We're very collaborative. We we literally write in the same program so we can so, sort of watch each other typing. Oh. We write every script together. Um, we spend a lot of time plotting. <laughs> we write very detailed episode outlines and then sort of writing the script, writing the dialogue is, is fairly quick if you've yeah, got a really right. great foundation for it. We, did, we do lo- sort of little workshops with each season. So this time we had a week in Sydney and we sort of, we had some, some men in the room, we had... Um, just a whole variety mm. of different people to help us with certain storylines. Yeah, nice. Which you've, was great. You've said making a TV show is not unlike uh, motherhood. In what way? <laughs> um, I think it's just there's highs and lows. You know, it's it's hard work. Um, it's you know, it's it, lack of sleep. Lack of sleep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lots of laughs. Uh, a few tears. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it can be quite traumatic, but it's also very joyful. Um, we like with the letdown. We really wanted to sh- we wanted to show a side of motherhood and parenthood that hadn't necessarily been seen on the screen before. For us, it's a given that that there's the joys of, of parenthood. We, we we all know that everyone loves their their babies, but we wanted to show not even necessarily the darker side, but just another side to it. Um, yeah, so we so we do get we do get quite dark. I think season two we continue to do that. Uh, we found that with season one, a lot of the storylines that that people really resonated with all, all the scenes were the darker ones, the moments where Audrey was really broken and, and crying. So we felt a real responsibility to sort of keep doing that with season two. I just, like I was saying off air before, I know I said at the start mm. of the show that I had a friend sneak out, just had a baby sneak out to have a glass of wine with me last night. And she is in that mode where she's like, I've got it, I've got 45 minutes and I can have a glass of wine and then I have to get back. And you get so efficient. Yeah, so, so efficient. And I was really struck by it because I don't have a child. And uh, another friend was there who also had a child and she said, you have to watch The Letdown. And you watch The Letdown, it's going to help you get through this period. Do you have much feedback from mums and dads saying, you know, thank you or, uh, you know, I couldn't have got through this without that? Yeah, definitely. And, and we, um, you know, we tell everyone that's had a baby to watch it. We've stopped telling people who are pregnant to watch it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Um, and we've, we've had a lot of friends who have made the decision not to have children and they love it because they're like, you know, it's really validated my decision. So that's great. Um, yeah, we do. We get, you know, we get a lot of people saying that's, that's my life. How did you manage to tap into my life? And I think if you just make something real and grounded and relatable, then you are, you're holding a mirror up to, to everyone. But we also try to go a little bit deeper than just reflection. Yeah, right. Mm. I think that, that is testament to why it's so great. It is relatable even if you don't have children. Like you've made it sort of – I mean, I loved watching it. I don't have any kids or have any plans to have yeah. any kids, especially after watching it. Um, <laughs> but I, but it's still – there are so many relatable themes and stuff in it. Even if you don't have children, it's that, you know, feeling of being judged and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's – I mean, it's really funny because once it went on Netflix, we, we were just kind of swamped on social media – and we found we um, we really tapped into the gay black 
male market in really? America, which really? was just like not who we were thinking would be watching our show, but they loved it. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Do you, do you dwell much on the, the Netflix aspect of the broadcasting of season one? Is that because that's the dream for so many creatives? And Yeah, well, we, I mean, what happened was we made the pilot for the ABC, which was part of their comedy showroom. So that was like a season of six pilots. Um, and then when the ABC said that they wanted to make a, a, season, a series of it, um, we sort of set about finding a co-producer and that was through Giant Dwarf, um, our production company in Sydney. Mm. So we kind of shopped the pilot around a little bit in the States and Netflix really loved it. So they came on board from the beginning. So they were, they were a co-producer of season one and then agreed to do season two. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's overwhelming because it's just, you know, we hear people talking about the show, like my cousin was in New York and the table next to her, we're all talking about the letdown and wow. Alison gets recognised in LA all the time. Oh There's my like God. certain hotspots. There's a one cafe in Los Feliz where if she doesn't get recognised, we get annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Barnes and Noble in, at the Grove, she always gets recognised. So it's just really funny. God. It's just, it seems like there's a lot of um, uh, Australian comedy productions that are... Uh, that have been co-produced by American companies now. Is that, um, is that the way it's always going to be now? Is that... Well, until the budgets, until the funding is sorted out, then, mm. yeah, I think so because I, I just don't think the ABC have the money to make these shows yeah. on their own anymore. Is that, like, do you th- see, see it as a, as a good thing or as a, you know... I mean, it's great that, you know, you have an American audience and, you know, a worldwide audience, I guess, but also it's kind of, I guess, uh, as a creative, you're kind of frustrated that our own country won't fund... Yeah, I, I know. It is It is complicated. I mean, it, it's it's worked very well for us because we're on Netflix and, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people have watched the show. Um, but, yeah, I know what you mean. It is, it, it's a shame that we have to do that. Um, but at the same token, they love working with Australians and they know that Australians can make quality television for pretty low budgets. So, you know, all our shows, they, they especially, all the shows on the ABC, they look so good. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. And you, you have a, a Parents and Bub screening coming up? We do, at, at Carlton this morning at 10.30. Wow. Yeah, so we're screening Eps 1 and 2. Will, will, there, will there be a suggestion box for people to insert? <laughs> <laughs> season no, three? we might do a Q&A after so they can ask some questions. And you, you have a background in fashion journalism. I just want to ask maternity wear. Has, <laughs> how far have we progressed? <laughs> uh, I haven't looked into it. My, my kids are now 10 and 9, but mm. I'm sure we've come a long way. Uh, moved away from Lycra, I'm sure. And do your, do your kids look at the show and go, well, wait a second? Yeah, no, no, they love it. I mean, they're both in it as well, small roles. Um, my daughter plays a young Audrey in a flashback scene and, oh, cool. and Henry is um, Celeste Barber's son. So. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, they love it. They're very proud. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Sarah Scheller. Thanks for having me. Uh, May 29, it premieres on ABC, The Letdown, Season 2. Thanks very much. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.